Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Most gracious God, may our minds, may our hearts discern what is right. Amen. Last Sunday, my sermon title was Wrong, and we considered what it means to be wrong. This Sunday, my sermon title is Right, and I want us to consider what it means to be right. I'll warn you, though, in thinking about what is right, it's important that we not get stuck. Listen for the never stuck word of God in the reading of our three passages. First, from Genesis, just half a verse. God saw everything that he had made, and it was good. Psalm 133, how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard of Aaron, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for the Lord obtained his blessings, life forevermore. From Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood beside him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to him, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time she came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. 
Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. And then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. What does it mean to be right? I am competitive. I grew up in a competitive family. The stakes were always high, especially among us boys, especially when we were young. Whenever we disagreed what was true, it got intense because it mattered a great deal who was right and who was wrong. Of the identical twins that we knew, who was born first? And which sister has the mole on her back? Is a football really made of pigskin? What's more poisonous, a rattlesnake or a black widow spider? Who got the bigger slice of pie? If you keep your eyes crossed, will they freeze in place? If you swallow gum, will it stay there for seven years? All those questions haven't made them up. They led to impassioned arguments with the goal being to decide who is right and who is stupid. We even measured the pieces of pie. It was a good exercise in geometry. I mean, what do you do with the sides and the bottom to get mass? And, uh, you know, we also, by the way, put the pies next to each other to see which was bigger because we couldn't do the math. In these arguments, you could count on this line always being said in every debate. Prove it. And if the matter ever got resolved, this line was always said, I told you so. So in answering the question, what does it mean to be right, we have to begin with being factually right, being right about information. And that sounds simple, but it often is not because, as I said last Sunday, who is right and who is wrong quickly becomes an issue of identity, who is smart, who is an idiot. That is immature for children when the issues are not that important, but it's dangerous for everyone when the truth at hand really does matter. I mean, in school, your grades depend on being correct. In life, the IRS genuinely cares about how much you make and how much you have deducted. Vote totals matter as to who won an election. It matters that we know how viruses are spread and how they can be avoided. Whether accusations about others are true or false can save lives or ruin lives. People have been lynched. Mobs have rioted. Countries have invaded based on evidence that we later learned was not true. So facts matter. And because a lie travels faster than the truth, and because facts are so easily ignored when they are inconvenient, I'm a big fan of fact checks. In this age of internet and cable news with so many spam scans and spins to confuse us, I'm grateful for those sites that check the accuracy of the shocking things that we are told, whether trivial or serious. You can go to good sites and find out if there is a secret restaurant at Disney. There is. If Marie Antoinette really said, let them eat cake, she didn't. Or if alligators live in New York's sewers, 
That's sort of true. A few pets are rescued from the sewers every year. And then you can check about things that really matter too. Can what seems to be an accidental payment to your Venmo account be a scam? Yes. Should you trust an email from me saying that I need you to purchase gift cards for someone with cancer? No. Should you believe a recorded message that your social security number has been suspended or free money is available if you'll only claim it, or that because of suspicious activity, a warrant has been issued for your arrest, and you can get that resolved with a phone call. No, no, and no. You can check the accusations, or the the spins, or the scandalous or scary things said by commentators, or politicians, or journalists, or preachers, You know, every Sunday I write a sermon that I preach anyway, every Sunday that I write a sermon, I do it knowing that you can fact check what I say. In my printed sermon, I'll offer you a couple of dependable sites. It's shocking, really, how much you can actually put to rest with a little objective research. You might even learn how much of your time has been wasted by those who are spinning you nonsense. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but for a long time now, all through human history, in fact, liars tell lies to cover up lies. So the beginning of an answer to the question, what does it mean to be right, is getting the facts straight, and that's important. But let's not get stuck there. When Millie and I pack for a trip together, I need a bigger suitcase. Our understanding of what is right needs to be bigger than just containing the idea that it means being accurate with facts and information. And one way that the faith tradition expanded the definition is to come up with a bigger word to contain it. The faith tradition expanded the word right to righteousness. The old English word wis was combined with the word right, wis can mean being sure, it also can mean a manner of acting, which is to say that righteousness means right living. It is about ethics. It is about morality. Now that's the kind of right that the Bible mostly is interested in. I mean, sometimes we Christians through history spend a great deal of time and effort arguing about facts, Was the world created in six days? Did Jesus really spend three days in hell? Did Noah ride in the well? Did Jonah, I mean, did Jonah ride in the well? Did Noah ride in the ark? You could fact check that. It was uh, Jonah who rode in the well. Did Constantine really convert to Christianity? Did 3,000 people really convert after Peter preached at Pentecost? The Hebrew and Christian scriptures are not that obsessed with the facts. They are more interested in right living than right facts. Think about it. Sure, the stories and history of the Hebrew Scriptures provide the framework for volumes of material about righteousness, about the right and wrong ways of doing, of living. To be righteous is to work and then to rest, to worship, then to serve to do those things that please God and not do those things that God forbids, kill, steal, lie, and such. There are certain foods we should eat. There are certain foods to shun. There are right and wrong ways to worship. It goes on and on and on. 
Some of it clearly is not of our times, and some of it should never have been justified even then. But regardless of all that, the underlying concern is to describe how to live as God's people in a world that did not always want God's people to live. It turns out that all people are God's people, but you get my point. The New Testament is not all that different in that righteousness remains a huge consideration. Jesus gives the demanding Sermon on the Mount. He tells disciples to pay attention to what people do more than what they say. Even his miracles end up with his telling people he heals what to do. Go to the priest, sin no more, get up and walk. I'm amazed that people spend so much time debating Pauline theology when Paul himself is obsessed with what needs to be done. Build communities of faith. Reconcile the divides within them. Make a witness of God's grace to the world. I could go on and on. Don't forget the letter of James. Faith without works is dead. But what I'm afraid of is that I lost you and I said the word righteousness. We don't like that word. That's not a word we like hearing. That suitcase has become so battered and dirty that most of us don't want to take it on the journey of our lives. Righteousness brings to mind that other meaning of the English word wis, which is to be, to be sure. Too many people are a bit too sure about what everyone else is supposed to be doing. In fact, we have expanded the world again to describe them. Righteous becomes self-righteous. I am self-righteous when my beliefs or actions have more value than your beliefs or actions simply because they are my beliefs and actions. We find the self-righteous in our gospel story. But before I go on, let me say that sometimes the self-righteous is not those people. It's us. It's me. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day were concerned about what we should be all concerned about, and that is how to live lives that please God. But the particular Pharisees of our story in that particular moment go too far. They're too concerned with their own fixed code that they miss a growth moment. One of them has invited Jesus and other Pharisee friends into his home. They have a meal that, given the context of the story, is probably where most meals are held at that time and in that place, in the open air. It's a conversation with a visiting rabbi, which will certainly about be about the interpretation of the Torah, and others are almost always invited to gather around the edges and listen in, though please do so passively so that the adults, the learned around the table, can have their conversation. But not everyone is welcome. Not someone like the woman who is so excited about Jesus that she not only listens in, she intrudes on the inner circle. She's known to be a sinner, someone accused of having done some things that had given her the kind of reputation where she should be the first to know that this is not a place where she belongs. But in she comes, and that is rude. And look what she does. She washes Jesus' feet with her tears. She kisses Jesus' feet 
that is inappropriate. It's done in the culture after feet are washed sometimes as a sign of great respect, but not her kissing his feet. Washing feet, certainly not scandalous in and of itself, because feet washing for people walking dusty roads and sandals is required etiquette, but an unclean woman should not be cleaning a rabbi's feet, should not be anointing it with expensive oil. She's upset. She needs to deal with it away from here. She really does violate rules about the right and wrong way of doing things. But to get stuck in her surface acts of impropriety can do harm. Last Sunday, I said that because human fallibility makes growth and discovery possible, that there is a certain rightness to being wrong. Well, these Pharisees show that there can be a certain wrongness to being right. Jesus sees what the Pharisees do not see, and that is the potential of the moment. He does not see a sinner to be shunned, but a person wanting to be healed within herself, within the community. And Jesus knows that when it comes to being right, you can get stuck not only in what is factually right, you can also get stuck in rules about what is right. Boundaries are important. In fact, boundaries might be emphasized more today by both conservatives and progressives within their own cultures than they were then. Jesus does something that might shock conservatives and progressives alike today. It certainly shocked them then. He defends behavior that is culturally wrong because he sees a person who wants to be right. Be right, not do right. What Jesus says of the woman is in keeping with what God says at creation. God says of creation, it is good. And Jesus says of what the woman has done to the Pharisees, she is good. And what he says to her is, you're saved, you're good. Go in peace. And now we widen again what the word right means. Last Sunday, I said that there is more to being wrong than what the prayer of confession has to say. Well, the same thing can be said about being right. There is more to being right than doing what is right. It is also about being right within oneself, with one another, with God. The word that Jesus uses to contain that added meaning of right, added to the facts, added to what we should do, the word that he uses to include being is shalom or peace. Shalom is the rightness of harmony. It is a state of being, a state of being which doesn't mean that it's static because many times harmony requires getting the facts right because getting them wrong can do harm. Many times, harmony requires doing what we need to do to fix what is broken, to heal what is divided. Shalom often requires the work of justice and compassion and reconciliation. But shalom speaks ultimately to not only what we should strive for, but also what was true at the beginning. The inherent goodness of life and of life together. 
I want to slow down a bit and just end on a kind of meditative note and look at Psalm 103. It began, how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. That can be a celebration of fact by the psalmist. Or it could be an aspirational goal. But either way, it's a description of life as it's meant to be. The psalmist goes on to say that there's something precious about a world at rest. Neighbors getting along. Families not quarreling. A world without war. Living. Dying without regret. How precious it is. It is like the psalmist says, the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard of Aaron. And then at that dinner, Jesus might add, it is like precious oil mixed with tears and rubbed on the feet of a rabbi by someone whose heart and life already is being healed in this abundant faith in God's grace. In the Pharisees' eyes, the woman was stuck in the definition of what is right. In Jesus' eyes, she's not stuck. She's liberated. She's found peace. So what does it mean to be right? Get the facts straight. Yes. Do what is right. Yes to that too. Find peace. Work for it. Be right. Goodness, if I could have that, and if our world could have that, I'd have plenty of tears to mix with my oil as well. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.